0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of More d D&I Discussions, a series of conversations with C-suite executives who share their candid insight into many of the important aspects of creating and advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion principles and practices in their organizations. I am Marlon Moore, president of Marlon Moore Consulting, and thank you for joining us. Today, I am pleased to be joined by my good friend Bob Carter, chairman of Carter, which is uh, which advances philanthropy worldwide by counseling nonprofit organizations in the area of fundraising, organizational planning, and governance. It is my distinct honor and pleasure to welcome Bob Carter to more DNI discussions. How are you, Bob? I'm um, well. Thanks, Marlon. Glad to be here. Good, good. Glad you could take time to join us today. Bob, how about you tell us just a little bit more about Carter? Sure. Um, Well, you, uh, I'll
1: I'll tell you the history of Carter is that uh, basically when I left the Omnicom group, uh, I I won't necessarily reveal my age, but I was retirement qualified and, uh, and fundamentally I was retired for 10 weeks and it didn't work very well. And, uh, in order to preserve my marriage, uh, I decided to start another business, and uh, that's how this got started. I talked to some of my colleagues in New York and other places and uh, just started a, a small private practice uh, with three clients and a part-time assistant. And uh, today, fast forward 11 years later, and we, we have over 50 consultants. We're working in eight countries and I'm chair, uh, but I also have a great CEO, Steve Higgins, who really runs the day-to-day of the company. One of the differences with our company is that we don't just raise money in the United States to send to those countries, but we actually help raise money in those countries, uh, which is a a big kind of critical difference. Uh, We do custom design work, our campaigns, a lot of it's centered around either capital or endowment campaigns or combines, of those two areas and they range anywhere from 5 million to uh the largest one we're doing right now is 1.5 billion it's one of those things where the diversity of our uh, client base keeps it very interesting for our uh, our consultants as well as for for me personally to see us work in all these different fields and what we learn in one area helps us be better in another area mm-hmm. uh and that combination is it seems to work well. We're based in Vera Beach, Florida. I live in Sarasota, Florida, but we have consultants who live all over the u s and and outside the u s also that's kind of who we are it's a it's a very good ten or eleven year story in terms of the growth of the company, but uh, I think it's based on sound principles and and uh, ethical work. so uh, I think it's going to last a little while.
0: That's great, Bob. Thank you for sharing that and um um, smart move with with uh, focusing on your marriage and doing the things that uh, keep your household <laughs> happy. Um, yeah. But but I really appreciate you sharing that context <laughs> about your reach, whether it's uh, domestically or internationally. Why is diversity, equity, and inclusion important to you specifically? Well, I I've always
1: um, you know I was the president of Ketchum, mm-hmm. uh, that larger company for a long time for about. 13 years and uh you know and at that time and we're going back into the in the 90s and 80s and so on and it was uh it was abundantly clear that there was uh there was a big difference in the not only the presence of uh of uh fundraisers of color and of uh you know who who didn't look like me uh but there was a a uh there was a real inequity in terms of the capacity of institutions who those uh, individuals represented having access to dollars. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it was very clear. And uh, early on in my time at Ketchum, uh, we became one of the first uh, Northeastern fundraising companies, large companies to work with uh, HBCUs. And uh, my early work at Fisk University is something I'm really proud of and I went on to work with about nine other uh, HBCUs, and uh, and being able to bring that funding to another level. The egalitarian part of of uh, this country's philosophy and and my personal philosophy have much to do with everyone playing on a level field. Uh, and I saw that that really wasn't going to happen. And early on, Marlon, I was told that you know, what are you doing working in the African-American community because there's not a lot of money there, fundraising money. And I said, well, well, let's follow it. There's a reason why there might not be. And secondly, uh, I was told that that community was not very philanthropic. And, you know, in America, we tend to measure philanthropy by cash. Uh, Working around the world and understanding this, philanthropy is measured in many other ways. And what I discovered in the early years of working in the African-American community and other agencies beyond higher education was that it was a very philanthropic culture because people took care of each other. Uh, Their love of fellow man was evidenced every day because they fed their neighbors. Um, And what I also discovered was uh, much, much philanthropy happened uh, between the church and fraternal orders. And that was that was the access for fundraising in that community. If, if I wanted anything to be successful, I had to have someone in the pulpit, and I had to have someone in one of the sorority or fraternity organizations who would endorse this, and then it would go forward. And people were very generous, et cetera. And you know, having excuse me, lived through that, and then the, the uh, case organization, Council for Advancement Support of Education put together something called a minority forum. And I was one of the first speakers in that group uh, back in the uh, 80s. Um, and we made real progress in, uh, in bringing together you know, anywhere from 30 to 40 uh, uh, people of color who, uh, who got better training and got focused training and intentional training, and in some cases, better placement for positions than they might've had otherwise you know, and some of this, frankly, Maron comes from my background. I grew up in a very small town in Elkridge, Maryland, and, you know, I, I tell people we were too poor to be prejudiced. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we everybody in that community had to do their job, yeah. and everybody sort of, you know, leaned in on a problem if it was a community problem. It didn't matter what color you are or where you live, but we all had to make it happen, and I, I learned that from my parents and grandparents uh, who were very close to the African-American community there. And my grandfather in particular, because he was an amateur boxer and most of his buddies were African-American boxers. So I saw this, this happening there as, it's just as a little kid. So it's always been something that's been in the front of my mind on how we do a better job of that.
0: I appreciate your personal perspective, your upbringing and how that has influenced and shaped your point of view as well as your previous work experience. You know, it sounds like you were at an organization who was getting out in front of this work, especially with historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, which I'm proud to be a graduate of one, Virginia State University and- I worked there. Yeah, Russell, look at that connection. So um, thank you for your work at VSU because it helped produce Dr. Marlon Moore. There we go, good. You know, very much appreciate that. But you touched on something, Bob, that I want to go back to because I recently read an article in the Stanford Social Innovation Review, um, and I'm going to quote the, the article here. It says, leaders of color have inequitable access to social networks that enable connections to the philanthropic community. Any any thoughts about that point of view? I think that's, that's pretty much what I was talking about
1: um, because, you know, we all... Uh, I call it spheres of influence. We all have a sphere that's that's around us, and if you look around, who's in it? Well, the majority of the time, you look at it as people like you, uh, people who look like you, act like you, whatever it might be. And where is your circle? Well, your circle may be in an area where you are getting exposed to others who have resources, et etc. And so there is a there's a lack of diversity in the in those levels of so- social. Um, socializing, if you will, to make that to make that kind of a connection happen. And what happens is then uh, the organizations who don't have people or board members in those circles, they have to work much harder to get into uh, that relationship because it's, in a sense, it's an abnormal thing. Because you know somebody who's already in that circle will ask for an appointment and they get it because you know, they know them
0: yeah so I would imagine Bob that that's kind of a two-way interaction, right so you have those who are in charge of distributing dollars, but then those who are leaders of organizations have to do their part as well. Would that be accurate? Yeah yeah it's it works on both sides of the equation. Yeah. what do you see as the board's role in ensuring that our organization kind of lives up to um this strategic imperative? Well, it's always interesting,
1: that, <clears throat> excuse me, you take a look at the board and then take a look at the service area mm. or the con- community in which it works. That's right. And you say, Okay, what does this look like? Is there any right. parity between those two? And, right. uh, you know, historically, that's been a big no in most cases. Um, and it's like, how do you know what's the way you ought to be making certain decisions if you don't have that voice in the room? That's right. And in many cases, that's 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 it's it's all you need is the voice you need. You need it at the table. Um, it doesn't mean, you know, you're flipping a board 100 percent or anything like that. But you must have voice and you must have that kind of representation. I think they're doing a much better job today than they ever have. But mm-hmm. there's, there's plenty of room to grow.
0: with the board. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate that. You know, I'm I'm actually a part of a board here in central Ohio. Um, United Way of Central Ohio, so shout out to them, that is actually requesting the board demographic of organizations they fund. And that's largely in part to ensure, to your point, Bob, that the boards reflect the communities where the dollars are going. And so it's really great to see that occur. But then also, I think it's important for boards to hold organizational leaders accountable for coming up with Plans specific to this work and making sure that they're executing against those. What would you share with me as some best practices for fundraising um, as a new nonprofit or even tenured nonprofit? But I'm, I'm sure that matters. But just I got to learn from the expert. How can I go out and raise some dollars, Bob?
1: Like so many things I say, it starts with the board. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So you need to assemble a group of people who have. Uh, certain, I call them qualifications. One, number one, they must be passionate about the cause. Uh, So they've got to be believers themselves uh, because one of their very important roles is advocacy. Mm -hmm. They have to be willing to tell their sphere of influence and others how great this mission is and why we're we're carrying this out. And they have to develop their own story. Um, They have to be able to tell another person why they're there why they made that decision. And that that's a principle of fundraising. Fundraising is nothing but storytelling. You know, we tell the okay. story of the institution, and then I tell my story about why it's important to me. And then I invite someone else to invest in it just like I have. And the other, the other qualification is that um, they have to have um, wisdom. You know, they're bringing something to the table to help you in your fundraising or in your programmatic support. And and the other part of it is working. There have to be hmm. people who are willing to work. One of the mistakes that's made early on sometimes is people get, um, you know, they get names. And okay. uh, they have they have half a dozen really good names in the community, but they're not going to do anything. They haven't uh. committed to it. They just kind of sound good and look good. I'd rather just have the endorsement. I don't want to put them on my board uh, huh. and have them help me as a, an endorser, et cetera. Okay. Uh, but but building that leadership group that um that cares deeply about what you're doing and is willing to do the early hard work to develop resources for you uh with their reach into the community, into the national, local, regional community, wherever it might be, that's gonna be critical because they become as a founder, you're let's pretend like you're the CEO. They're mm-hmm. gonna be your
0: partners, basically. Mm-hmm. I guess as we kind of round out our conversation and you've touched on so much today, what parting advice would you leave organizational leaders? Um, you mentioned earlier, this is a journey, right? So yeah. what parting advice would you, you leave for organizational leaders who want to do better in the DEI space?
1: Yeah, I would, I would say this. Um, there are a couple pieces of this. One is you, you must be intentional about it uh, and you have to develop your plan for your agency and your culture on how this will work. You can't look over your shoulder at another agency and say, okay, we're going to do that. Uh, you got to do the hard work, which is inside and, uh, and develop a plan that's going to make sense for your agency. Uh, so that's, that's number one. The other part of it is recognize that it's not going to be uh, all, all peaches and cream. Uh, And understand that. And if you are making an intentional move to bring in uh, more diversity, equity, inclusion into the room, do it in numbers that make sense. Hmm. Uh, Don't bring one one representative in and say, "Okay, here we go. Because, number one, that's an awfully uncomfortable position for that person. So I would say try to bring a class in that is more diverse and another class following it and so on, do it over a period of three to five years, and develop a plan along those lines. Uh, because very often, some really good people get invited onto the board, they look around the room and say, well, I'm it," And uh, mm-hmm. that's a very lonely feeling for a lot of people. Doesn't bother some people, but it's, it's kind yeah. of lonely. The other part of advice, the third piece I'll give is, um, today, all leadership has to be adaptive. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Make sure that your CEO, as well as as your uh, your your senior leadership, your board, all have an understanding of what adaptive leadership is, mm. and look for answers in some places where you never had to look before. So uh, that's part of that's asking yourselves the right questions, and then listening to others from the outside.
0: I, I don't want to talk too much over that because I think that's a great great place to leave it. Adaptive leadership leads to inclusion, um, is I think is a great message. So Bob, thank you so much. This has been phenomenal. Um, thank you for your many contributions to this work. Uh, your continued voice uh, and leadership uh, matters you. to many communities as we ensure equity on both the board level, on the philanthropic level, and in society in general. Thank you for listening. Marlin Moore Consulting is a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy development firm, helping organizations build their diversity strategy by providing them with resources to support their execution. For more information, visit marlinmoore.com. And remember, diversity starts with you.